Hello, revelers, and welcome to mid-October. If 2020 has proven anything, it's that you really can't plan on things being sensical, normal, any stretch of the imagination. So I'm sorry this is delayed due to just 2020 life, but I know that you will love this episode. It will transport you to many places, the beach, the theater, traveling, a very serendipitous world provided to you by Christina Tracy. And if you haven't looked at the show notes, make sure you do after. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to Revel Revel. This is Lauren Drabble and today my guest is my friend Christina Tracy, who I know from, well, let's just say being neighbors. That's fair. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That that threw you off. I was wondering what the pauses are like, what is she going to say? This is exciting. (laughs) Well, we worked next door to each other. How is that not neighbors? It's totally neighbors. You know, I would describe us as meeting over coffee. Yes. Coffee buds. Or tea. Sometimes you would get tea. Sometimes tea. You make a mean cup of coffee though. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Thank you. So let's start off with, from your point of view, you know, what brought you up to the Conifer neighborhood and, and how did we meet? So we met being neighbors. We work at the bookstore. And I worked at Tasman's before COVID. So uh, I was there every day and you were just such a light that I would come in and take my lunch break and have coffee with you at the bookshop. I love to be surrounded by books. So I think you and I have that in common. Like you just feel calmer when you walk into a bookstore. I agree. Yeah, totally. The way they smell and all to me, because I'm an artist, just all the covers. I know you're not supposed to judge a book by the cover, but I always do. I just, I just love looking at all the art on the covers and it's just calm. So you held that presence that even though I worked at a healing center and taught yoga, (laughs) that's awesome it was just as healing to walk into a this you know the bookstore and just enjoy your company and have these great conversations that we'd have I miss that I do too so this is fun but yeah but what brought you up to To Conifer Conifer yeah So my husband and I purchased a house in Bailey, just south of Conifer in 2004, but we were traveling that whole time. So we never really got to live in the house. When we would come take a vacation from traveling, we would come home to the house and just be like, oh, it's so beautiful in the mountains. And we traveled with the show Wicked. My husband's an audio engineer and I was a makeup artist on that show. And before that, we were traveling with The Lion King. So almost my entire career has been sort of backstage working on Lion King and Wicked. I've been so lucky to just work on two really incredible life-changing shows, each for about the equal time, seven years and seven years. Oh, wow. I didn't know. It was yeah, that with a week off in between. What? <laughs> but my husband and I, he, he traveled longer than I did before I met him. And he had traveled and done a show in all 50 states. And he's from Indiana. And Colorado was his favorite of all 50 states. And he said, you know, I really want to buy, you know, land in Colorado one day. So he bought this house without at first having an intention to live in it. 
And so that's what kind of brought us to the Bailey area, which Conifer is like the closest grocery store and coffee shop (laughs) and healing center. And I remember I didn't finish touring until almost 2017. And the whole time I was thinking about the house up in Bailey and loving it so much. And I was thinking, how am I going to make a living up in the mountains? Like, what am I going to do? Am I going to commute into Denver to do makeup and work on the shows? And I wasn't even home when we finally landed in the house a week when I started teaching and working at Taspins. And so it, it was just this beautiful, like, I know you like to talk about uh, chance and, and just kismet and, and that serendipitous kind of thing. It was just, I just walked out of the theater and walked into this healing center and got to spend time with these beautiful people and the community. And it was part of my job to talk to people and listen to people and talk about healthy things and healthy products and healthy breath work. And it was just, it was just this beautiful like switch for me. It made me not grieve not being backstage in the theater as much. I have been thinking about, you know, what I want to talk to you about and you've already brought up like three or four things, but I, (laughs) I'm afraid I'll forget. So this may have no sort of flow or whatever, but can you explain what you mean by breath work now before I forget? Because I think that's so important in general, but I think it's also very important in 2020 that we all work on our breath. Man, breath work, gosh. Breathwork is like this, this secret that we all hold within us, no matter what our condition, what our body type, what our culture about, like we all have breath, we all have that in common. And yet in our culture, we don't, we don't learn to work with it. So, so breath work is just a series of different exercises that can, we, we breathe in a certain way and a certain pattern. Sometimes we'll breathe backwards, forwards on the left side, on the right side, and I can kind of be more deep, like by holding your right nostril, you would just inhale and exhale through your left nostril to feel calmer because the left side of our body is like that, that the sleepy side of us, the moon and the darkness, the, the feminine, the creative. And the right side, if we wanted to feel more energetic and f- focused and ready for the day, we'd block our left nostril and just breathe through our right. And it gives you this burst, this, I call it my caffeine breath, <laughs> you know, by the energy breath. But so there's all these, there's thousands of different ways we can manipulate how we breathe how we sit and how we hold our hands and uh, where we breathe and what we're breathing. You know, it's a lot different doing breath work in your bedroom as opposed to taking a a 10 mile hike and getting to the top of the mountain and doing breath work, right? Like you have a different experience. So, so breath work is what I'm really into now with COVID times. I feel like it's non-negotiable, a tool for me to help maintain the stress and anxiety that we're all kind of being asked to have the capacity to handle right now. Because, you know, we don't like change. We don't like shifting. And yet we're made for these times to shift and change (laughs) and do it. Like we don't have a choice. We all have to change. And what do you do between the realization of needing to change and then being comfortable in that change? To me, that's connect with nature and we can breathe and we can go into stillness and it'll help give us this capacity to just, just handle it just to get centered and balanced. And it's amazing what just two minutes of controlled breath can do for you just to just feel fine, just to feel like yourself again. I know in different cultures, they, the first thing they teach children is breath. 
So like in America in kindergarten, someone you'd ask somebody, what is the first thing you learned in school? And they would say numbers, colors, alphabet. In different cultures, the first thing they would learn is how to control their breath, how to take a deep inhale and a full exhale. And always remember when they get frustrated, when they're learning to always come back to that inhale, exhale. And it's instilled in such a young age that it's this tool that stays with them their whole life to manage stress and anxiety. I really think breathwork creates happiness. I have never heard that cultures start with teaching their kids that. That's fascinating to me. And how did you get into breathwork? So I'm a certified kundalini yoga instructor. And kundalini yoga is, they like to describe it as having aspects of all lineages of yoga. So you have movement, you have meditation, you have breath work, you have chanting, you have visualization. So breath work is a part of that practice. And, you know, honestly, breath work is difficult. It's hard. A lot of people like to say that they don't know how to meditate or they can't sit still or they can't meditate. And there's a process. My answer to that with people is like, did you move and breathe before you started to try to meditate? Because breath work can be the bridge from sitting down and getting into a meditation. And it's difficult. Any kind of controlled breathing that a lot of breathwork facilitators can teach, even just taking two minutes just settles your entire being enough that maybe meditation might be a little bit easier. And and let me give a good example of of a really balancing breath work would be one breath that you could do is you can take these tiny sips in So you would inhale for four counts, like inhale to the count of one, two, three, four, and it would sound like, right? And then you would hold it for the count of four. So you would just hold and be still for a moment, count to four in your mind, one, two, three, four, and then exhale, exhale the count of four, and then hold your breath out for the count of four. This is called a box breath. You could just do inhale for four, hold for four, exhale for four, hold the breath out for four, and just keep this pattern. Just set a timer, do it for two minutes, and then see if you can meditate. And it's it's pretty cool how quickly the breath work can prepare you to just be still so that you can hear, you know, nothing for a minute. <laughs> Like, so some people like to say to to just be in the stillness, to get the whispers, to get the messages. And I'm like, oh gosh, just to just everything just shut up for a minute. (laughs) I don't want anything. I don't want guidance, you know, not at first. I just want to just have calm stillness for a moment. I like stillness and I like quiet, which is interesting that I worked most of my life in around loud personalities and loud backstages. And (laughs) I love the vibration of loud things. And the cool thing about these times, I've been studying breath work and yoga since the 90s when I lived in Los Angeles. You know, I've always just practiced because it felt good. And now in these times, I'm like, wow, not only does it feel good, it works. Like I'm calmer and I can see things from a higher perspective and I can integrate a little bit more hope when I'm not feeling hopeful. And I'm like, that really, really worked. So right now, breath work for me is so exciting because because I can see it helps people. It's awesome. Well, I love your heart and the attitude of helping people just to do simple things to get through life. And, oh, I always loved when you would come in because I never knew what we were going to talk about. And of course it was your break. And so I didn't want to pepper you with questions. 
So unfortunately, here they come. No, <laughs> but, but can't sort of help focus where I want to go with the kismet and serendipity and stuff as much because I think we need to get a, a bigger picture because, you know, you've got all these different things in your past. And I just want to know how they all happened. So <laughs> so I, I was born on the East Coast in Pennsylvania. Me too. Philly. Were you? Yeah. And what town You're are Philly. you? Union, Union Town. I don't know where that is. I'll have to look it up. So it's it's the most West. It's really, it's really close to Pittsburgh. Okay. And when I was five years old, my mother and my stepfather packed everything that they owned into a U-Haul and they drove to California. And I remember from such a young age, like my visuals associated with music, like, you know, the Led Zeppelin song, going to California with an aching in my heart, like that. I was five years old and they were just playing that music as they're making their way across the country. I remember in this U-Haul, I have this vision of us arriving to California and seeing the ocean for the first time. And the vision that I have is we parked alongside PCH in this U-Haul truck, walked down to the ocean. And, and you know, when you, you have your feet in the water and the waves come, your feet get lower and lower and lower before you know it, you're completely buried, right? I remember this feeling of that sensation of never experiencing that before and then having this visual of looking back and seeing the U-Haul higher up on the PCH and like just like... I'm in California, you know, it was just that was my first memory of being in California. And I, I loved growing up there. And I loved the weather and I loved the ocean. And I loved just there's so many directions you could go when you grew up in California. So how I ended up a makeup artist working for Broadway is that I felt growing up in Los Angeles that I was limitless you know, I, I could work and do whatever I wanted to do in any field. It was all there. So I never thought I would leave and travel. Like Los Angeles was, was home for me. I loved everything about it. And even, <laughs> oddly enough, sometimes when I go back and the smog smells like home a little bit and I'll be like, oh, that sounds good. <laughs> so I can't even describe that smell, but it's kind of like a mixture of ocean, fresh air, and like, toxic air all at the same time whatever smell that that kind of <laughs> swirls into but I grew up in the 80s I graduated in 1989 from high school and found theater right away and just felt home not on stage of course I had to start on stage as we all kind of do when we love theater, but I was just fascinated with quick changes. I was fascinated with how the, the drops would go up and down and the ropes. And I just liked backstage more than being on stage. So I got to do one year of high school theater and that led to me, which was always a passion. I always loved going to Universal Studios when I was a little girl because that was the backstage secrets, right? Yeah. I loved, I just thought it was so magical. I, I would go to Universal Studios over Disneyland any day, even though I liked that too. But <laughs> it was always my wish. My mom tells me like we would take you to Universal and you'd say, I'm going to work there one day. Like I didn't think I'd work in movies, but I was going to work at the, <laughs> at the amusement park. Well, that's fun too. <laughs> I know. So, so I ultimately did work at Universal Studios airbrushing t-shirts in the airbrush t-shirt stand. But you, do you remember those? Like yeah. the heart and the pencil and the Lupita loves Pepe, yeah. you know, all that <laughs> fun, like 
like stencil airbrush. So I did that. And, you know, I was, I was thinking about how, lo- how you love to intertwine these serendipitous stories. So just loving the coming to California, loving the ocean, loving the movies. I would get excited when we would see the movie trucks and the sets because they're everywhere in LA. And then, and then having this ambition to work at Universal Studios and work. And then one thing, my whole life has just led to the next, to the next in this beautiful, easy, graceful way. So here I am working at this airbrush stand and they had a show. I don't know if you know or remember this, but it was the animal actor stage show at Universal Studios. It was one of my favorite, like they would have all these different shows where they would show you how they trained the animals for the movie. Oh, that is cool. Yeah. And on my lunch break, sometimes I would go catch the show and I met the trainers and I could go backstage to that backstage show and like feed the parrots and had this really incredible experience backstage of Universal Studios. I've always wanted to do the underground tunnel tour through Disney for the same reason. Yeah. Oh yeah. Wouldn't that be so cool? I did that in Seattle. You know, Seattle has this underground thing. Uh, No, tell tell me about that now. (laughs) When you you walk on the sidewalk in Seattle, there's these purple little like glass squares Uh and, and those glass squares sort of shine light onto like what used to be the existing like Seattle town. And I guess there was a flood or something and they had to build the roads up, but the tunnels are still down there. And you could take a tour. It's pretty creepy. Well, now I know because I'm the type of person who does like the labyrinth tours and like the crypt tours all throughout Europe, you know? So like now I'm going to, next time I go to Seattle, I have something new to do. Oh, it's super creepy. They still have like the storefronts and then like those purple, like the the light that comes down there is, it's like nothing else. Like, oh, it's so cool. That was one of my favorite things I did on tour. Cool. <laughs> so you were saying about the uh, serendipity of working at the airbrush stand. Oh, so serendipity. Yeah. So working at the airbrush stand, loving the connections that I had. That I loved animals. I've always loved dogs so much. And in the mornings before they opened the park to the public, the trainers would walk these animals. They would walk around with them so they would integrate with people. And one of the trainers would walk this dog named Jeremiah in front of the airbrush stand and I would always stop and give him loves and kisses and you know just just love on this dog which just this red fluffy cute thing and then on my lunch break I would go watch him perform in the show and I got to talking to this trainer and he's like he's he's going to be up for adoption because it's really common with trained animals that once they figure out that if they don't do what we ask of them they get to go home with us and get treats and get more attention when they do everything they're told they're put in the kennels and you know they sit backstage and they only get to come out for the show they said that these dogs have like four to five years where they could use them and then they would retire them and and give them up for adoption. So I got to adopt this incredible dog from Universal Studios and he lived to be 18 and he ended up traveling with me for most of my time on Lion King. Kind of a tangent. That's awesome. <laughs> but anyway, so the next steps for me from this airbrush stand that it was sort of in this place in the park where before the park would open, people would walk by and I'm friendly. So I'd always say hi. And so they would wheel these racks of costumes and be like, hey, what are you guys doing? They're like, oh, we work backstage at the, you know, Dracula show or the, at that time in the 80s, it was like the Conan show or the American Tale show. And I'd be like, oh, I want to do that. We're like, oh, come back and watch us. And I would sit back and watch them do these incredible like 15 minute shows. And, and just, I would be in awe 
and, and just be like, oh, this is so cool. This is so exciting. And I'm like, how do I get this job? So I got to interview and they're like, well, you got to sew and you got to, I'm like, I can learn how to sew. And it ultimately ended up getting hired on as a dresser backstage of all these different shows at Universal Studios. And I just got to be in all these different aspects of theater. And it was really quick and really fast because these were like quick amusement park shows. And we would do like 20 shows in the summer back to back. Like we would do a show, we'd reset they'd fill a new audience. We'd do a show, we'd reset, they'd fill the audience. And this would just be like my eight hour day. And I loved it. I loved how quickly the day moved. I loved the backstage. It's loud. It's silly. Everyone's laughing. And I fit in, you know, you know, it's so diverse in the theater, every culture, every, I had never met anybody that was gay before until I went backstage. And I was like, Oh my God, this is so much fun. <laughs> like everybody's so free and everybody's so, so themselves. And I, and I just, even though I was always a quiet, reserved person, I just loved being in the company of, of players. You know, even if I were backstage, I just loved everything about it. It was so magical. So that was like my first experience with theater. And then from uh, Universal Studios, when I was working backstage at the American Tail Show, and the, and the show is all these mouses, and, and there's these voiceovers, and their faces are just like smiling, but they're not moving. <laughs> But they're singing and dancing inside these costumes. And there was this big cat puppet that was in the show. And the guys that ran the puppet were special effects makeup artists. And so this was like the next, the next shift into the next thing. I was like, well, what do you guys do? And they would do puppeteering and they would do uh, special effects on the Frankensteins. And and I'm like, I want to learn how to do that. And they're like, we'll teach you, come to our garage. And they, and they taught me how to do bald caps and special effects makeup, like blood and guts. And I loved it. And well, one of the guys ended up being one of my boyfriends at the time. And the other guy, he ended up being one of the a really acclaimed makeup artists. He just won an Emmy for all of his Star Trek stuff. But his name is James McKinnon. He's a very acclaimed, award-winning makeup artist. But he just kind of took me under his wing, showed me what he knew about special effects, and had all this knowledge. And I loved it. I loved sculpting. It's a very male-dominated industry. So I felt cool. Like, I've always been kind of a tomboy. And I learned how to make prosthetics and like just, just slide a throat and guts and all this stuff. So, so I learned that. And on that side note, I, are you a Game of Thrones fan? Oh, yeah. Okay, so so you know the scene I'm talking about the first time we get to see like the main White Walker and he's standing on the edge yeah. of that yeah, river yeah. and his arms are kind of out and he's got that puffed out chest and the chin and that makeup and I start crying. What? Like literally like tears are coming down my face like it is the most beautiful makeup I've ever seen. <laughs> like I just could, I, it completely pulled me out of the story and I was just like, Oh, it was just this beauty. It was like going to a gallery and seeing the most incredible painting you've ever seen. Like to me, that was just a moment. And I have moments like that with different characters because I know how hard it is to just create a character. And when it works, it works, you know, and that one just for me was just like breathtaking. Like it sucked all the wind out of me and I just, (laughs) I loved it so much. So I always have this passion for creating this art in the 3D, right? To me, that's what makeup is. So I really just kind of soaked in to these guys and learned everything that they knew. 
and it, it really started to evolve into this love of working with my hands. So the next step for me is as I moved more and more into the costume department at Universal Studios, I started to get to know the people behind the people who made the mascot costumes, which there's this company in, in Burbank called Custom Characters, and they built, so if you go to Disneyland or Universal Studios and you get to meet the walk-around characters like the Woody Woodpeckers or Mickey Mouse or the princesses, this company made everything that created these characters. So I was like, whoa, I want to work there. <laughs> so I went and interviewed with them and I began work. I quit Universal and began working in the shop, creating the shoes and the hats. I remember the walk around character for Buzz Lightyear and Woody was, was kind of popular at that time. And I, I was in charge of making Woody's hat and creating the pattern and, and sculpting the hat out of foam. And I learned these incredible things like how to manipulate foam and create headpieces and did that for I did that for a whole year and <laughs> the next step into serendipitous is when I would work it was monotonous work after a while because we would not just make one hat for Woody there's Disneyland's and Disney World's all over so we would make like 10 Woody hats so the days would be pretty monotonous but I like that I like that kind of work I like that production line kind of thing and I would listen to music or I would listen to and this was early 90s so there was no podcast at that time but there was KCRW which is this amazing radio station in LA that was like public radio I remember I would listen to Morning Becomes Eclectic and then I would listen to these Will the Circle Be Unbroken show that was all about slavery and the music of the time uh. and it was amazing I just soaked it up and I would work and I would listen to this and and I just really got into public radio and, and I learned so much. And in the afternoon, I would turn on this classic rock station, which was the Mark and Brian show, where they would interview famous people and they were funny and they were quirky. And I was like, I think I want to go work there. <laughs> so I called the radio station. And I'm like, how do I get a job at the radio station? So I got a job at this radio station answering the telephones and I got to work with Mark and Brian backstage. I got to work with um, this famous DJ called Jim Ladd. He was like this, he was called the LA cowboy or I can't, gosh, I can't believe I forget his tagline. But I remember this man, Jim Ladd, back when I was a kid, when we were sitting around the table, we would listen to classic rock while we were eating dinner. And I, his voice announced that, that John Lennon had been killed. Oh. Like he was this, this famous. So I had this memory of my mom starting to cry and his voice. And I got to and work with him. And he was friends. Tom Petty would come. And I got to do these incredible things with these people. I remember David Crosby, he came because I was working at the, the costume shop and kind of overlapping at the radio station. And so we worked with a lot of hot glue guns. And I remember I had burned myself terrible on my finger. And David Crosby came in and he like had this like medicine bag around his neck and I, and I went to shake his hand, but I couldn't cause I had this blister. He like takes my hand and he takes this ointment out of his medicine bag and puts it on my blister. <laughs> and I got to meet Dave Matthews and Brian Setzer band. And, and it was just so exciting. It was so cool. And, and I, and at, during that time, when you worked at the radio station, they gave you free tickets to any concerts that were happening around LA. So I got to see live shows and live music and things I would have never been able to afford to go to. 
I remember getting free tickets to go see Toto. Mm -hmm. And I would have never, you know, bought tickets to that show. But I think to this day, like, they rocked the house so hard at the House of Blues. I'm like, you got to go see Toto if you get that opportunity. (laughs) So I kind of moved from, I was just following these passions that would just come up. And I would say something to myself, like, I want to work there. I want to do that. And then I would take the next steps to to inquire about how to work there. And I'd let the universe just kind of do the rest, you know? And, and what I, does that mean? Like, can you explain to people what that means to you to let the universe do the rest? Just make it happen for me, right? I think I think when I say, I, I know what my definition would have been then, and I have a whole other definition of what it means to me now. Mm. And I think what it meant to me then was just me being curious and wanting to feel free and seeking, where am I going to end up? Okay you know, and not worrying about it, you know, like just as long as I was my mom, you know, I was just make sure you have health benefits. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> Every time I would switch jobs, just make sure you have health benefits. <laughs> and I always would. I remember when I moved from Universal Studios to the costume shop and I did the interview, I'm like, do you have health benefits? And they're like, yeah, I'm like, okay, whew, now I can do this. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to, we're so, going to have stuff in the show notes about why America needs universal healthcare. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And you know what? It was a thought at the time. I mean, now, you know, I've kind of brought you up into my, you know, my mid to late twenties now, you know, like probably, you know, probably mid twenties at this point when I, when I was working at the radio station and, and, and the radio station leads to my makeup job. So, so, so see how, how it's all serendipitous of coming that way. But I did remember at the time feeling like I wanted to do all these other things like travel and leave for a while and not tell anybody where I was going, but where would my health benefits? Yeah. (laughs) Like there's a lack of freedom, you know, like I always admired people who just winged it, but I had such a hardcore mom, you know, and she just really, she made me fearful if I didn't have like the, the found, like the bases, like you make sure your rent's paid, make sure you have health insurance, make sure you have car insurance, make sure you have a car, you know, all this stuff. And I, and I was really limitless within this limit. That makes (laughs) sense. Yeah. I was never that person that could just, you know, go backpack around Europe, although I always wanted to, but I think my mom just gave me too many things to fear and I never could quite conquer the bravery you took to do that. But okay, so I'm working at the radio station, I'm answering telephones, I'm completely separated now from the costume shop, and I'm not working with my hands anymore. So I start really missing makeup. And, you know, I wasn't working at Universal Studios full time anymore. But at that time, they had started doing what is now pretty popular, like in in October, they would do Halloween Horror Nights, like scary mazes and stuff like that. And I saw that they were hiring from makeup artists to come and do like the scary people. And it was just for October. And I was like, oh, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that. So I got hired to do that. It was like my first official like makeup job. And it was crazy. Like we would show up at four and we would just do at least a hundred people throwing them through the makeup chair and getting them out. And, and, and we were set up in like a parking garage. So it was like this epic tent and it was all prosthetics, all blood and guts. And this point I had never done a beauty makeup. It was really just special effects and like blood and guts and things like that. So I was having a great time. And the woman that sat, that had her desk next to me, 
she was a beauty makeup artist. So she, she asked me, you know, when we were doing this job, she's like, Hey, I have this fashion show coming up this weekend. Would you come and help me? I need an assistant. And I said, I would love to, but I don't have a big beauty kit. She's like, Oh, you can work out of mine. Just bring your brushes. Okay. So it came, we did the job. I used her kit, did the brushes. And at the end of the show, I said, woof, I've never done beauty makeup before. She's like, what? <laughs> She's like, you did a great job. And I'm like, okay. So then that kind of sparked learning more about beauty makeup, learning more about different aspects of makeup. And it opened up this whole new, you know, makeup is so vast. You can do it in so many different ways. You could just strictly be a makeup artist that does weddings for your whole career, or you could do special effects, or you could do movies, or you could do theater, you know, I, I didn't know where any of this was leading, but I was creating this incredible relationship with this woman. And she was hiring me for things. So what I was doing at that time, since movies didn't pay health insurance, I was working on movie sets all day, not going home, going straight to the radio station, because at that what had happened at the radio station is I just started assisting the producer for the morning show. And the morning show is like started at 5 a.m. and ended like at 8. And so I just needed to be there for those times. So I would work all day on the movie sets and then I would come in and then work the radio show and I'd go home like at 9 in the morning. Like I was just kind of working all day and all wow. night, just hustling. And, and I loved both things, but the producer of this Mark and Brian show sat me down and I can see his face and I can, I can hear his voice. And he looked me straight in the eyes and he goes, you got to choose. Oh. Cause you're stuck in at this right uh -oh. now. <laughs> He's like, you're not doing a good job because you're too tired. He's like, just choose. And I remember thinking, but if I, if I choose freelance makeup and I go into this film and TV world, I'm not going to have health insurance and I'm not going to know when my money's coming from and I have to be a freelance. But I chose that. It was probably like the first brave thing I ever did in my life. And I started working on, you know, low budget, non-union movies around LA, 75, you know, dollars a day to work 15 hour oh, days. Wow. And I just, that sucked. And this was even back, you know, back in the the nineties. And even then that money was terrible, but I was so happy and I loved it. And I continued to do that for about two years. And I, you know, lived in Hollywood at the time. I lived at Sunset and Franklin, which is just one block from Sunset and Vine. And Sunset and Vine is where the Pantages Theater is. And so every day I would leave my apartment and I would see them setting up for the Lion King. Like they, they were renovating the theater to be able to bring this big show in. And I said the same thing to myself, I want to work on that show. <laughs> So, so I bought tickets to, I don't think it was opening night, but it was like the first week and I saw the show. And from that, that the moment that my life changed, the curtains open and Rafiki goes, nah, and that makeup, it was just primary colors, no blending, but I was in the cheap seats in the back and I could see it. And my heart just opened and I knew that, that I was home. And so at the end of that performance, I somehow got myself backstage and said, how do I work on this show? <laughs> and I was able to, I guess, audition if there's a lack of, there's not really a word for like proving your talent, but I had to, you know, do the makeups and, 
I got hired on and I never stopped working in theater after that day. I, I really never went back to film and TV full time. And I just, I just kept going with theater and I never tried to seek work, just work came my way. And, and I don't know what I did different because I talked to a lot of people who, you know, are up and coming. How did you get into theater? How do you do this? And, and the answer is, I don't know. I was just happy. I was just incredibly happy. I think the, the most amazing thing from an outsider point of view about how you got in was if you went opening week, right? Why wouldn't they have already filled all the jobs? Oh, they did. In that particular case, there's five permanent makeup artists on Lion King. And it was the biggest show that ever hired makeup artists. Because usually, uh, and this was a lot of money. This was a big million dollar production. And they usually, you know, Beauty and the Beast was the first show that they hired and traveled a makeup artist because it was complicated. Usually they have actors, you know, cats, they all did their own makeup, you know, all that stuff. Lion King was the first time that they had five makeup artists permanent. And like I said, they, they had been through rehearsals and set up. And by the time it came to opening, they were tired and they were ready uh, to off. So I got hired as a vacation cover. So my first thing that I did on Lion King was learned all five backstage tracks for each main person. And then there was one moment, so the very first makeup that I learned was like the Simba and Nala track. And then I moved up to Rafiki. And that was like the makeup that really just sparked my theater, just like I, I, this, I, my heart, my theater heart, right? So I was a little bit nervous. And the woman who, who trained me, and she's a dear friend to me even still, her name is Brenda. And she was so meticulous and the actor that I was doing on was so picky like it she'll know if you do three swipes instead of two so you've got to get this right in three swipes not two you know like it was really intense my notes were really detailed and 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 you had to be so steady-handed because I don't know if you know what that makeup looks like but it's all a water-based liquid kind of makeup so it's slippery and they can't blend together so you have to be super precise that the colors have to touch but not blend Mm. around the nose so you had to have a really steady hand and the actors they wanted the regular person to do them all the time so they were just kind of like can you just please get this done because because backstage the, the thing about being backstage is that there's a a puzzle piece to every moment on stage and off stage. So if you don't do your puzzle, if you don't put your puzzle piece in at the right time and in the right timing, it sets everything off. Meaning if the actor is used to getting their makeup done in 20 minutes and it takes me 30. Well, now they're 10 minutes off in their prep. Does that make sense? Totally. So, yep. so not only do you have to recreate this look and help them feel like their character, but you also have to get it done in a very specific time amount to fit that piece of the puzzle. There was this one moment on Lion King and I'm going, I'm going way back because I think I started working on Lion King in 1998 or 1999 at the Pantages in Los Angeles and I had gotten through doing the Rafiki makeup. The show hadn't started yet because she's the first note. So we hadn't gotten places yet. And right when they called places, the supervisor came up to the room and said, she's not going on. You got to get the understudy on. You've got five minutes. <laughs> and I just took 
20 minutes to do what now I need to do in five. And since I was so new and I was kind of still in the training process, I just stepped back thinking she was coming up to the room to sort of like say, get out of the way, let me do this. But she was like, no, you got to do this in five minutes. <laughs> and I remember if we were talking about breath work and to bring it back to full circle, I remember just intuitively knowing that I needed a huge inhale to accept that. And I needed to, on the exhale, the inhale and the exhale is all the time that I had to pull myself together to accomplish this. And sometimes that inhale and exhale is all you have to remember how talented you are or how strong you are or what you're capable of. And it could be that quick. And I did it. And I remember just being so proud of myself, you know? And I remember being like, oh, I'm finally good at something. <laughs> it's like oh. that moment for me. Like I, you know, I found my confidence in something. And so it just kept inspiring me to learn more, do more and just thrive in that. And, and I think just coming to work every day, so dang grateful that I was doing a job that less than 0.0001% of the population actually got to do. So I don't remember when we had this conversation, so you might remember it, but you were talking to me about how you miss the community of the theater. Do you remember? Yeah. 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 So which community comes up a lot on the podcast and it's obviously very important to, well, I think to all thinking, feeling people, but particularly to people who have felt that community and then now no longer are feeling it. So I'm wondering why you left the theater and, and when you left, did you think, oh my God, I'm going to be losing this community? Um, that, that's a really great question. And by the way, I loved that quote about the, the RGB when she says, if you're not living for the community, oh, so yes. really the, the, so fresh her death, you know, still as, as we speak right now. And so there's right. so many things coming out, but like I said, most of my, my makeup career is these two epic shows and they're sort of like living in these two towns, <laughs> you know, almost because Lion King was so cultural to South Africa, almost like living in two different countries, Wicked being fantasy country and, and Lion King being like African country because what it was like being in the community backstage of Lion King that there are so many actors in the show that that were from South Africa and that still had family that they were sending money home to to support mm -hmm. while they were on tour with Lion King and and they brought that authentic vibration their voice the sound to the show and and what that looked like knowing them backstage is that backstage things would turn culturally our community would culturally lean towards theirs and they were so happy to share with us their cultures like he, here's a story one of the the women and, and they would they would demand that we would learn zulu and like try to, to pronounce their names like Tundi or Tomkona, we had a mobile. Like we had, to, like when we addressed them, they didn't make it easy for us. We had to speak their name as it's pronounced. Good for them, because I have to yeah. tell you, as a person who it gets so uncomfortable, I have to correct people all the time, and they look at me like, "How dare you make me feel like I'm not saying your name correctly?" I'm like, "Well, you're not." Yeah, you know? and it's not that hard. There no. is a big difference in my world between Lauren and Lauren. Yeah. And, and I'm like, say Lauren, 
and they and they can't hear it, they can't do it. And I'm like, I just want to throw one of those names that you just said at these people. I'm like, oh really? My name's hard now. <laughs> <laughs> they would take time with us too. The big, uh, I remember Mobile had the, the, the deep baritone voice to be like, no, Christy is Mobile. Mobile. <laughs> and I'd be like, Mobile. <laughs> I would just try to get it over and over again. And and the cool story about the South Africans, we had gone to Mexico City and we were in Mexico City for about six weeks. And they, it was so cute. They were in their South African accents trying to learn like Spanish. It was so cool. They, they were just Oh, I, lo- I loved spending time with them. And, and to this day, there's still, you know, some, some of them I've kept in touch with, with Facebook. And when the show's over, they ha- they're citizens of South Africa and have to go back. And so they feel very far away, but the lessons that they, that they brought to my life and, the, and really to my marriage too, because that's the show that I met my husband on. And he and I share these incredible experiences. Um, like, like the one I'm, I'll tell you is, I remember doing the actor's makeup that was going to play Rafiki that night. And she had gotten communication that a family member had died back home in South Africa. And she removed herself from the chair to collect herself. But instead of crying, she just started singing Mm. and just started vibrating the sound and just walking and singing. And all the other South Africans in the show knew what that vibration was. And so they started singing with her. No one was hugging her. No one was telling her it's okay. They just started singing with her. And, you know, all of us uh, Americans just like, I have goosebumps just telling you that story because it was just so, I felt like a citizen of theirs and and their, you know, they, they were teaching us how they mourned and how they needed to be supported. And we got to have a little window in that. And then even on the flip side, then anytime someone would join our company, they would blindfold. So they would go through the rehearsal, they'd have their put in earlier in their day. And now this is their first performance. And so they would blindfold this new cast member and they would line the entire company along the hallways of the theater. And they would walk them blindfolded through this sort of like you know, train of people and people would whisper to them, welcome, welcome to the family. And they would just walk them to this designation backstage in the theater where there would be one South African chanting this sort of welcome ceremony that they would have, right? And they would, they would slowly walk them and everyone's praising them and praying for them and telling them to welcome, welcome, welcome. And then everyone would kind of, as they would pass, everyone would kind of follow and they would form a circle and put this person in the middle of the circle, take off their blindfold. And at that time, everyone is singing this like celebration chant. And it was a kind of, it was, it's some of the most blissful moments of my life, just, just hearing the vibration, the sound and the joy that they brought with their voices. And then at the same time as a makeup, but like, dang, I just did their makeup because they would always ball. And then they're, and then we were like, places, that's place. I'm like, no, we have to fix it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so being on Lion King backstage was like, like living in South Africa and I've never been there and I've always wanted to go. And it was just like this beautiful family they called it the pride land and we just moved across the country together and experienced things together always had each other's back and it was like living in the smallest town within a stamp because the 60 i think there was like 65 of us that moved with the lion king 
And then, of course, when we'd get to a city, we would pick up locals that would help us do the show. We, we would call them like the local hires because the show would take like 300 people to get the show up. But there was, you know, 60 people that traveled permanently with, through the show. And then, uh, so question you asked me was like, why did I stop? So our tour closed. It had just come to an end where they had exhausted. I know that's confusing because there's still a Lion King tour running or there was before COVID, but they had a first national tour and a second national tour. Mm -hmm. And so both tours were sort of like, you know, kind of conquering Canada, Mexico, and the United States. And then when, you know, sales start to fall off, they sort of regroup, they kind of make the show smaller to be able to sit to, to be able to fit the, the show and all the set pieces into smaller theaters. Like, like for instance, they would still go to Denver and they would still go to, to the bigger cities like Los Angeles and Seattle. But then if they shrunk the show a little bit, meaning that they would just take it down a bit, they could fit into like Raleigh, North Carolina. That doesn't have like a 5,000 seat theater. They have like a 2,000 seat theater. So I was on the first national tour of Lion King. And so that closed in 2011. And I already had gotten hired on Wicked. But the friend of mine that was running the show at the time was waiting for me to finish Lion King so that I could complete Lion King and then move right into Wicked a week later. And I remember being really tired and having to fly out to the sit-down company again back at the Pantages in Los Angeles, same theater that I started Lion King in. And I had traveled for seven, seven years total but I had gone to every major city in, in our country, which is so beautiful, like major city, like any city that had like a big theater and a big theater market. And we'd also go to Canada and we went to Mexico City and we would go to Hawaii, which was incredible to be in Hawaii for a while. So I remember by the end of the tour, I had tried to negotiate for a month off just to settle, just to chill. And they're like, no, if you want the job, you got to start in a week. And I was like, oh, man. Oh, I'm so tired. I'm so tired. But I flew to LA. I met the the wicked makeup designer, Joe Delude, who's this incredible person. So so she has a she gets uh, made up at the top of the show, and then at intermission, she gets made up again in a different way, right? So I remember observing and watching the makeup in the in the backstage dressing room, and I just remember feeling tired and being like, man, wish I had that time off. I don't know if I want to do this. I don't know if I do this. And I they get me a seat. And I'd never seen Wicked. I didn't know anything about it. I know I love The Wizard of Oz. But they get me a seat. And it was kind of back by the, the soundstage. And Eden Espinosa was the very first Alphaba, the green witch that I had seen. And she she was like uh, the third. We, we used to call them, you know how the Dalai Lama is like the, the 14th Dalai Lama. We yeah. would call them like the first was Idina Menzel. And then <laughs> she was like the third Alphaba, right? Okay. And she's, she's incredible. And she's doing the show. And I'm, I'm just watching this show and I'm like, whoa, this show's good. Like, this, is, this is a good show. And I love the makeup and I love how it looks under the lights. I'm like, this is a really good show. And she sings Wizard and I, and then the other numbers come in. And then at the end, at the end of the first act, there's that defying gravity where she flies and, uh, you know, she's that. And boom, like there's this big like button at the end of that number. And literally the audience just roars, right? as the curtain is closing and as the lights come up for intermission. And I just remember having to walk to go backstage to watch and to go into her dressing room. And I was so taken by her performance, by the show, 
that it literally sparked and fueled me and passionately fueled me to show up to work every single day for that show for the next seven years, like in that moment. And I, and I remember walking backstage to go into the dressing room and just being like, I'm a little like starstruck. Like, I can't believe that I was just watching you perform. And now I'm sitting back here getting to touch your face and be in your energy. And I'm starstruck. Like that was incredible. And and just as a side note, like these times with COVID and, and theater just being completely shut down, I don't think enough people know about that feeling that, that it's not just the performers performing and the lights and the art, even when you're sitting in the audience, that the, the emotion that you can feel when you're watching theater can spark and ignite that passion within you to do what you do best. Do you know what I mean? That magical moment where you're just yeah. so inspired that you're like, what am I going to do? <laughs> like, how am I going to fly? <laughs> yeah, no, that's really good. That's a good you know, way to I, it. Yeah. It's just, it's just that that's what's so incredible. And it's so, I, I just, I know we'll come back to theater. I know, I know we'll get back to the entertainment industry. And I, and I think it's going to be different than it's ever been because I think more people will see such a value in being inspired. Like there's such a value in our society about being inspired for you to find how you can inspire and keep it going, keep it going, keep it going. I totally agree. And I, I really liked at the beginning of COVID that people were talking about what was getting you through was the arts, that people were turning to music and shows and the theater, you know, every week was like showing something different. And I don't know, we stopped talking about that, but that's what's getting people through that yeah. and that and pets, you know? Yeah, and pet nature. I, my, my really good friend, Allison Luff, she was a green witch as well. I was lucky enough to be her makeup artist and to talk to her about her process. And she's so talented. And she went from uh, many things after Wicked. But when COVID first hit, YouTube was allowing those like bootleg videos that people had filmed to, mm-hmm. to stay up. And I remember it was the early days of lockdown where you're just like, wow, like I'm, I have nothing to do. Like, what do I want? That's an amazing question to me because I'm always going and hustling and doing, and it's rare to just slow down, right? You cut out, the sound got weird. So what was the amazing question? When lockdown first started, just being able to slow down enough to be even to ask yourself what you like, what do you want to do? How do you want to spend some time? Mm. And YouTube was allowing those bootleg videos to, to stay up. So I chose to kind of look back at some of my friends, like my friend Allison Love, who had moved from Wicked, and she was starring as Jenna in Waitress, which I had never gotten to see it live. But there was this bootleg video of her singing the song, uh, She Used to Be Mine, and I don't know if you know the show. Oh, oh, I'm a huge Sarah Brillis fan. So when I found out about that she was doing that, I was like, well, that's cool. I thought it was weird because I didn't really love the movie. And then I heard that song. Oh my God. Oh, Oh, yeah. I had never heard it. And I watched this bootleg video and and whoever had filmed it was like zooming in and zooming out. And you could hear like a, you know, the camera going in and out and out and and Allie's performing, Allie's performing. And, and, and I know her process, you know, she takes it so seriously and she believes that this flow of energy is just moving through her and her talent is to be shared. And, you know, she's just got this amazing way about the way she performs. And I, and I just happened to know this about her. 
you know, because I've spent time with her and I felt that when she was the green witch in, in Wicked. But she's Jenna now in Waitress and she's singing this way and this camera's going in and out and it's fudgety and it's bootleg. And then she starts to, to really sing and everything stops. The camera stops shaking. The audience is so quiet. And she sings this number. And, and before I know it, I'm bawling because even through YouTube, I'm, I'm, I'm even feeling the magic of the theater and not being in the audience. And then, of course, at the end, it's a belting number and the notes and the emotion and boom, the button. And you can just hear the audience just applaud. And even sitting on my couch on COVID and just having kind of for the second time in my life, my career shifting again, <laughs> you know, like we weren't teaching yoga in the studios and, and I wasn't getting to do theater anymore. And everything was just kind of like still in that moment. And that was another magical theater moment where I got re-inspired. Like, how am I going to show up now? Watching it on a bootleg thing on YouTube during COVID had the same effect of me being and watching Edie and Espinosa for the first time as a green witch and being in the theater with the audience. It still translated the same way because it's got this energy in it. And I, and I kind of got fascinated with that feeling that I had. And I, I love learning about heart coherence. There's a that? heart coherence. It's a company called HeartMath, and they study, you know, how you can get the rhythm of your heart in a calm state. Mm. And, and there's certain things you could do by just pull, you know, by thinking about something you love very much, like your pet almost automatically puts your heart into this, this calmer rhythm, right? And so I had found this study that in the theater, when a, a, an actor is performing, and it's the, those notes and the crescendo, it happens a lot in opera, that that everyone's heart resonance is in the same rhythm. Mm. So every single person in the house, in the theater, is in the same flow, in the same rhythm. And that's such a beautiful thing. You know, it, it's just such a beautiful thing, the, the magic in the theater. That's really hard to explain. So, you know, when I hear people talk, I get, oh, I want to recommend a book to them. Mm -hmm. And I definitely feel like you have a book recommendation for us about all this. But the, the two books that came to mind as you were talking, the first one is, I think it's called Educating Alice, because you just, you're always learning and you're you're so interested in learning new things and that personal edification and all that stuff that comes along with it. You just want to know stuff. It's about a woman who I think she's 40 or 50 and she just starts going off and doing different things. Like she goes to culinary school just to learn how. And then she travels to this different place just to learn how. And I think that you would really love her, her memoir. And then the second one was The Art of Hearing Heartbeats. Ooh, I like that title. That's a novel. And so it's very, very fringe based on what you were just saying about the regulating of everyone's heart at the same rhythm. But I think that it's kind of metaphysical. It's kind of Buddhist. It's, I think you'd like that. I love that. Yeah. Well, that kind of links us right into then the next step of where I'm at now teaching yoga and meditation and breath work is Lion King was not like this. It was more wild. We had five makeup artists and five actors in the room. So the room was loud and crazy, but on Wicked, it was just me and the green witch and, and maybe the hair person and maybe the costumers. It, it was a much smaller experience in her dressing room. And at that time, you know, I've always been a yogi. I've always been interested in, in meditation and calming my mind, but I started to notice 
because I was becoming a mother at the same time. I, I was traveling. I met my husband, got married, had a kid all while we were on the road. And when I first had my son, I started really making the connection when he was upset was when I was upset. So if I calmed myself down, he would calm, you know, those early stages when they cry, 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 you don't know why. A lot of the time is that they're, they're kind of scared of your energy. Like your energy is just different and, and a little bit scary because you're worried. Are they hungry? Are they, da, 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 you know, like all those like first three months of like being a parent, trying to figure it all out. I really started playing with energy. So when I would go back to that inhale and that exhale and calm myself down, he would calm down as well. And, you know, some parents go through like, is he hungry? Is he tired? Does he need attention? And I'd be like, does he need peace? Oh, yeah. And so, so that, you know, just becoming a mom and nursing translated into how that peace that I could generate from my heart center while I'm doing someone else's makeup, because you're in such close proximity heart centered hearts to hearts and and what other profession do you you're literally in someone's face and sometimes you're meeting them for the first time and you're right up in their face and so what i was learning about being a new mother i was learning that when i was calm i could keep the dressing room very calm and and some people whatever their processes were didn't like calm <laughs> like they they wanted to keep the energy cuz they're about to go perform and they got to let's you know pump it up some people liked that calm before the high intensity. So I could play with my energy and my heart coherence. And if my actress, you know, Alphaba was such a vocally challenging role that they would get very upset if they'd hit a shanker note. And instead of trying to help or heal, I would just simply just try to calm my energy down and, and trust what I had learned that energy is contagious. And I started to notice that they would calm down too. So when I decided to become trained as a yoga teacher and teach meditation, and I would tell my friends who I was their makeup artist, they'd be like, of course you are. Of course you're going to do that because you're already doing that. You know, you're already creating space for people to have the space to go quiet, feel safe enough to just be calm. That's kind of the whole story, how each experience is kind of blended into the next. And I've just followed curiosity and I've followed this path that just feels like when the next step is time, it just happens. And so, so I explained, you asked me when I said the universe took care of it. In the beginning, it was curiosity and passion. And now my answer to that is I wake up every morning and I ask how I can serve. And so I don't know what I'm going to do now because, <laughs> because, you know, there's no theater to be in and and I'm teaching yoga on Zoom and I love that. And that's one thing. So that is one thing I'm doing. But where I went every day was going to the healing center. That's, you know, not happening right now. And I don't know what I'm going to do next. But I would think that this beautiful story that I've just told of how everything's just kind of flowed, that <laughs> it's coming, right? Like, I don't, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm not too worried about it because I've always just kind of flowed into the next thing quite easy. So it's given me a lot of a peace and patience during this time. And I've loved converting my classes that I taught in person. I've loved putting them online because like I said, I had that experience of feeling that inspiration, watching a bootleg video of my friend singing. I'm like, of course we can still connect with through yoga and have community on Zoom. And so, so I teach you know, three classes a week. And one of them is just a 30 minute 
breath work class where we just show up, we do a little movement, we just do breath work, and then we keep the channel or the portal open to just talk and share and support each other. And it's there every week. And sometimes people will call me and say, oh my gosh, I'm sorry, I missed class. And like, that has nothing to do with me. Don't apologize. I just want to keep this portal open for you so that it's always there for you when you need it. Just like the coffee shop is always there for you when you need it. You don't have to go in and apologize and say, hey, sorry, I didn't get coffee yesterday. (laughs) But the coffee shop is consistent and always open for you, always there for you when you need your coffee. I mean, I'm using coffee as a metaphor, but the bookstore or the library or like. Right. You know, these community places, wherever community is for you. Yeah. And the, mm-hmm. and the sad thing is that, you know, by the time this comes out, it'll be known that as you know, cause I told you before we started that the bookstore is closing that, you know, between COVID and Amazon, it's over. And the saddest part about that is that people don't realize that place of community is going away. And what's the community going to do without it? You know, so I'll have to figure it out. But you know, when you told me that the the bookstore is closing, there's a part of me that you told me that news, I think probably on the same day that Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. Oh God, I'm sorry. The whole whole message was that we got to, you know, people aren't going to do anything for us. We have to fight for the things that we want. And so the owner and you, you guys did such an incredible job to create community there, but there's only so much you can do if the community is not also supporting that mission, that the community is also part of keeping it a community. Yeah, totally. The owners can't keep making it happen if people aren't there to support and protect and make it a community. So it's, it's not anybody's fault. It's just that we have to get into a different mindset that if I like this place and the way I feel here, what can I do to serve to keep it rolling, to keep it happening? And we don't have to be an employee or get paid to do that. We just, we tell all of our friends and we keep the momentum going for this. Like, Hey, like it's nice to just go sit, get a cup of coffee, sit in a comfortable chair and and look at all the books or sit and just read one or buy one or, you know, whatever, like it just feels really nice. And so meet me there. Yeah. Let's support our local business. Let's not buy it from Amazon. Cause you know, you guys made it so easy to not buy from Amazon. You're like, if we don't have it, we can get it for you, you know, buy it from us. But we have to start thinking in smaller. We've just been taught to just think so big. Right. But if we just have to take care of ourselves and our family and our neighbors and our street and then go from there, right? Like we we just moved and we rented a house for a year to see if we liked the neighborhood and then moved about my Fitbit said 500 steps away (laughs) and we're on a new street. And, you know, we knew all of our neighbors over there and we know all of our neighbors over here. And yet, even though it's only 500 steps away, it's a whole other street and it's a whole other experience over here. And we take care of each other differently than we did over there. And I was thinking about COVID and, you know, when, when fear comes up and uncertainty comes up and like, if anything bad happens, like I got Joe across the street, that's got my back, right? Like I feel safe because Joe's over there and you know know what I mean? Like if we just encapsulated the people around us that are closest to us and, and made sure everyone's okay, that's closest to us, that's community. And my union in Los Angeles, my makeup union that I belong to, I, I had to pull over. I was driving my son to school and I got a random call and I never pick up 
calls I don't recognize, but I picked up the call and it was my union calling from Los Angeles to make sure that I, how are you? What's your mental state like? And I had to pull over and just chat with this woman that I didn't know that called me to ask me that. And of course, they're just going down the roster and calling everybody. But that meant so much to me that my community of makeup artists took the time to ask for volunteers to call everyone on the roster and just ask and make sure. And and so that really inspired me to serve that way. So I try to call a few friends every day and, and I text people I haven't texted in years and, hey, I'm, I'm just checking in. How are you? You know, how's your mental health? How are you holding up? It's really up to that person then to create community by saying, no, I'm not good. (laughs) Or great. How, you know, I'm going to call my friends, you know, and make sure they're okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You got to put yourself out there for sure. Well, I just looked at the clock and oh my goodness, we've way over time. (laughs) I talk too much. I have a, I have a habit of doing that. (laughs) So I have to end on this. If you go back a few episodes, I need you to listen to the hummingbird episode. I listened. Oh, okay. So, so that you did. So you, this is your chance to correct me and my bad memory about, remember? About the wicked. Why didn't alphabet fly? Yeah. Okay. So you, you did, you had most of that story, right? Except that we would never travel to a theater that couldn't fit that effect. Cause that was, yeah, that makes sense. That was the, why the seats are, you know, $150. Right. And that thing that made her fly, that machine that made her fly, that takes up so much space backstage that no one can see from their seat created like a lift in me, you know, like as she's elevating and defying gravity, so am I and my passions, right? And everyone else. And that's why there's such a huge applause. So what happens backstage? There's this gigantic, it's a hydraulic elevator, basically, with a long arm. And so the number that happens before, there's a black curtain that separates the stage. And so behind that black curtain, the crew is setting up this thing and they have to bolt it to the ground because it's that heavy and she's out so far so it can't fall down, right? So they bolt it to the ground. And what she stands on is a square that's about 12 inches by 12 inch square. So, and everything's dark and black. The machine is dark and black, so you can't see it. And so she has a number with Glinda and then the guards come and she goes, run, right? So she has to run and she has to take her cape and make sure her cape comes around the machine and that her feet are perfectly centered on the square. And then the belt is an automatic belt that if she's standing correctly and her cape is out of the way, it's not going to get stuck. Then the head carpenter says, okay, belt, and the belt goes. And this all has to happen in literally... I think the count is three seconds. Wow. So she can't fly if any of those things happen. So I would imagine on that particular show, either she wasn't centered on the plate, her cape didn't wrap around the machine, it got stuck, or the belt didn't fasten. And so the head carpenter has to make the call if it's safe or not. So I would imagine that there was just something that wasn't hitting, that it wasn't safe enough for her to fly. And, and it's so crazy that you saw that show because I think in the seven years that I did that, we may have had four or five no-fly shows. Oh, wow. So you got to see a very special show. Well, where, yeah, <laughs> we'll put it that way. <laughs> And there's no fly choreography. So if for some reason they have to abort the effect, 
the actors, the other dancers on stage literally have to lay down as flat as they can to make her look taller than them. Oh, that's funny. (laughs) I don't remember that. Yeah, that's the thing. And so Lion King had a flying effect too at the very end. No, it's Simba's at the top of the rock and he's got Scar in the same position that Scar had Mufasa in when he killed Mufasa. So Simba's got him now, you know, circle of life. And then Simba just releases Scar and he goes, no! And the rope, he's on a rope and he flies down and dies, right? Well, sometimes that effect wouldn't work. And the man who played Scar, he would come backstage and he'd go, I had a death by embarrassment. (laughs) 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 Because he would just like, the the sound effect was like, no! And he'd still be hanging up there. (laughs) So, you know, it, it was so rare when things would go wrong. But when they did, everybody felt the impact of that. I'm, I can guarantee you that you being as disappointed in that audience that there was not one person backstage that wasn't like, damn it. Because their part yeah. of the puzzle did not go. Yeah. Well, right. And, and like you said about that eruption of applause. Mm-hmm. Well, there wasn't yeah. that time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then, then you feel that lack of it and it, that energy just keeps going in a bad way. And then you have to go, shit, we got to fix it for second act, you know? Yeah. That, you know, I didn't plan on saying any of the things that I've said today, except for this one thing that I would like to just, since we talk so much about theater. So this is just an epiphany. Uh, uh, I don't know what the word is, but it's the way I feel about theater. And it's, it's the half hour call. So you show up to work an hour, an hour and a half before they call places and the show starts. But there's a very special call called the half hour call that you got a half an hour before things really start. You know, that's when Alphabet would start her makeup. That's when everyone would start getting into their costumes. That's when the way that we came into the theater When we got to the half hour call, anything outside of the theater or outside of the best interest of the show or the people that are coming to that show would have to cease until the end of the show. Mm. And to me, that's the answer to the magic of the theater. It's because the moment that the stage manager calls, this is your half hour call, this is your half hour call, every single person in that theater comes into a like mind and they focus on the task at hand, which is to Everyone has to do their part and everybody comes in, concentrates 100% on their part and nothing else matters. And almost 99.9% of the time, everything works perfectly because everyone's coming in. And so I'm relating this metaphor to all the things that we have to fix in our society. If there's a way that we could call in that magic to our society and our community, that this is our half hour call. And I kind of feel that way about environment. Like this is our half hour call to come into like-minded solutions on how we're going to combat things that aren't working in our society, you know, whatever that might be for you, environment, education, you know, those things that just seem like they're crumbling right now. We need a half hour call to meet up and everyone to focus on the things that they can do to make sure that we accomplish this goal. And I think that half hour call for me getting to experience that for more than 14 years, because I continued in other, other things working for the LA opera and things like that. But like, I learned every single day that compound effect, the magic of like uniting with a company to accomplish a goal is the same thing as uniting in a community to fix something that needs to be fixed or to build something that needs to be built or to heal something that needs to be healed. Like if we all come together in community, the way 
that you get like a time limit. Like this is your half hour call. You got a half hour to get ready. And then that's it. (laughs) And, and we did that every night. It was beautiful. It's a, it's a beautiful way to live. I had never heard of that. So I really appreciate you sharing that with the audience. So thank you that I think that's a really helpful, timely metaphor. How can I show up? Like, where, where can I go with, you know, I have hands and I have, I, I was taking my shower. I think, I think my best thoughts when I'm getting in the shower, you with me on that? Oh yeah. Because you, <laughs> yeah. Because you disconnect from everything else. Yeah. And I was, I was speaking with a friend yesterday and she was talking about how she was cutting a bunch of trees down on her property for insurance reasons. And she was just like, gosh, it was hard labor. And I was thinking about our ancestors and I was thinking about how hard they worked to build the infrastructure of our country. And I I was taking, and I had that kind of in my head, I was taking my shower this morning and I was thinking, and I was like thinking of all the hard labor of our ancestors, but now thinking to us and what we need to do is really to use our mind which brings us back to that calm state of breath and meditation. And like, how can we use our mind to rise up into these times? And we have to use those heavy muscles in our mind. Like everything's, you know, for the most part built and we're not required this hard labor, but we really have to think our way out of this. (laughs) Like we really have to come up with some solutions now that our ancestors did with hard labor. And we're going to have to do with like, our emotions and calming our emotions and, and settling the chaos within us so that we know what's real and what's not real and solve it, get it over with, get the show done, you know? <laughs> and make it the best experience right. and show that you yeah. can. So yeah, that's a good way of putting yeah. it. Well, I'm sorry to yeah. cut you off because I feel like you've got so much more to say. We're going to have to do a part two. So I want to thank you for your time. Thank you. You don't ever have to twist my arm to talk. Uh So I know that was long, but I think that you've probably really enjoyed it and really, really, really want to go to the theater. So many little towns are having regional theater somehow, you know, remotely or whatever. And then you've got big names who are doing online readings and different shows. So please seek out and promote the arts as well as this podcast. Hopefully you've subscribed. Hopefully you're telling everyone about it. And hopefully I will see you next week with Annette Mason-Greg.